2: Hello,
1: this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorley, still in Brighton, clearing up after the big speech by Keir Starmer. Patrick Maguire will be here to give you everything you need to know about the speech uh, in just a moment. Well, also, and our big thing, we've taken a look back at the debut speeches of previous Labour leaders, uh, so that's coming up. But first we kick off with today's columnist panel here in Brighton, joined by The Spectator's Isabel Hardman, and from Labour List, it's Sienna Rogers. I suppose we should start by talking about Keir Starmer's speech. And in the context of how the conference has gone, how important is it, Sienna? Is it his make or break, as lots of people are suggesting?
3: Well, his team wouldn't like you to describe it as make or break. (laughs) As they pointed out yesterday, uh, you know, every single leader speech is described that way. But obviously it it is more important than other ones because he has been in post for quite a long time now, 18 months. And yet we haven't heard him actually address a real life audience properly. So he's got this chance to speak unfiltered to the public. It is really key. The kind of I mean, the theme of it is sort of I'm not Corbyn. Although, you know, they claim that it's kind of all outward facing, future looking, all of those kind of phrases. Ultimately, it's all about I'm not the last leadership. Um, So, you know, how that's received in the party is as important as how it's received, uh, whether it gets through to the country, I think, because there has been... Endless speculation. I don't know if you two have, have encountered this as well. at conference, I'm sure you have, about who his successor is going to be. Yeah. And it's his first conference. His first real-life <laughs> conference. And all anyone is talking about is who's going to be next. That's not great. So he needs to address that.
2: He has sort of encouraged that by doing all these rule changes about yeah. the next leadership election. That, I mean, and that's the, of that's the thing
1: that like, even normal people, I'm not suggesting that anyone here is normal, but normal people in the country will be thinking, why have you spent your first party conference? Arguing about who's going to how how you might select your successor when presumably you're going to win the next election and then be in power for
2: decades to come. But this is the weird thing: is that when you talk to a lot of the shadow cabinet, they say, "Oh, this you know this is about five years time, ten years time," and. You sort of think, well, hang on a second. But the election's in a couple of years' yeah. time. So, are you all really actually just planning for a much longer period in opposition? Maybe Keir Starmer, and this is something I've heard suggested by opponents and supporters of him, as a sort of kinnock figure who yeah. does the kicking out of the, the sort of you know the militant left, helps to rebuild the party, and then a Tony Blair figure comes along.
1: And who might that Tony Blair figure be, Sienna?
3: Who, who might? Sorry, uh,
1: just in, um, if there is
3: the Tony Blair if, figure. If,
1: if he's if he's basically tidying up, yeah. clearing out, getting the house in order. Who is the next generation? and Who, Who's impressed Join this conference?
3: Well, the people that have been talked about as potential successors, definitely Wes Streeting. Wes Streeting comes up all <laughs> the time. Has been yeah, coming yeah. up all the time. Um, Notice that he was being wined and dined by some Sunday Times journalists last night. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's a big name. And obviously, he got a big speech at this conference. And he's really essential to Starmer's operation. He's always put on the media because they think he's their kind of best media performer. And his brief is child poverty. And and they think that's absolutely central to their leadership and the kind of the biggest theme, the po- policy theme. So definitely Wes. Um I mean, obviously, Angela Rayner is always talked about. Who knows? Mainly you know, by Angela Rayner.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's been all sorts of complicated tensions within the left around Angela Rayner, Andy MacDonald, John McDonald, all of this kind of stuff. Whether the left can actually unite behind a kind of soft left figure who could now get that 20% of MPs' uh, nominations in order to actually reach the ballot in a, in a future leadership contest is the question, I think.
1: Who's impressed you this week, as well?
3: Angela Rayne has got all of the
2: attention, hasn't she? She's been very effective at prolonging stories about her. Um, She gave a very moving interview to the Times before the conference, and we had the debate about scum. She's much better at Starmer than Starmer at getting attention. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that is quite important in opposition because you don't have unlimited attention directed at you. So to be able to seize those moments when people are going to just shine the limelight on you for a little bit longer than than they normally think you deserve is a gift. Now, a lot of people would really disagree with the way that Angela Rayner operates, that calling Tories scum is, is a way of making our politics even more hostile than this already is, that she speaks in such broad-brush terms that it would be very difficult for her to, you know, lead a government. Um, To be fair, we do have someone who does that as our Prime Minister at the moment. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) these things happen.
3: I think something that a lot of people remark on is Angela Rayner might be a better opposition leader mm. and Keir Starmer is more suited to being Prime Minister. Well, that's what i kept like, he,
1: he would probably be quite a good permanent secretary in a government department. That sort of sense. And that, but actually, that's not... <laughs> Do you mean that as a government <laughs> that's quite <Matt>. insulting. <laughs> but that's not... You know, he's a very, you know, um, efficient, sensible... You know, everyone keeps telling me what a, what a good person he is. He's mm. a good man. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, but probably not necessarily a good politician. Mm. And actually, uh, like you said, about seizing those moments, but also just being able to change the weather. Is he going to be able to do something in this speech which gets him on the front pages tomorrow, gets him in the bulletins, and slightly changes the opinion of him? Or is it going to be more of the same nice man, bit unexciting?
2: We have been briefed that he's going to go into more detail about his backstory and his un-
1: most, personal speech, his most personal speech yet is a terrifying sweat. It really <laughs> <is> <laughs> Not
2: something that fills us with with thoughts of joy. And... Uh, you know, it, it is interesting to, to find out someone's hinterland, but but we do know his backstory. I think yeah. we do all know his backstory. At least those of us who care know his backstory. What we now need is, is the front story, what he's actually going to do with Britain. And I'm not sure that that's been clear at all from this conference. You know, we've had some policy announcements, but do they set up a dividing line between Labour and the Tories? Are they aimed at setting up a dividing line between this Labour Party under new management and the Corbyn years? It's not clear. They, they feel like a sort of weird smattering of different
3: things... That Different front well, quite a lot like. of the
1: policies they've announced today are actually Corbyn-era ideas, aren't they?
3: Yes. I mean, the, the fair pay agreements one for over the, over the weekend has probably been the biggest policy announced so far. And that is just restating the one, uh, you know, st- announced at the kind of conference last year that was talked about then. Um, it was called something different collective <laughs> sectoral <laughs> bargaining, but they re- relabeled it and re-announced it. So, I mean, I think in terms of hitting the headlines tomorrow... Uh, I think everyone's been talking about whether he's going to be heckled. And I know that Momentum have sent out a message to their supporters who are going to be in the hall during his speech uh, this afternoon and told them, do not heckle him, do not chant about the previous leadership. Uh, Those are their instructions. We want you to chant about a £15 an hour minimum wage uh, and your 10 pledges because those are the things that Keir Starmer doesn't want to talk about. Mm.
1: That's interesting, so we might not get all Jeremy Corbyn. We might get £15 an hour.
3: If momentum has its way, exactly.
1: (laughs) That's interesting. So that sounds more like there might be something later.
3: I think something is being planned, yeah. They're certainly being encouraged, the left delegates.
1: This £15 an hour thing, am I right in thinking that they've just tried to rip off the... AOC campaign in America for $15?
3: I think AOC and what uh, Biden is doing and what the US Democrats are doing is very influential on the Labour left. They're constantly comparing what Keir is saying to Biden and saying, look, he's a centrist. He's not even centre-left. He's not even left-wing. And yet he's more radical than you are. Obviously, the leadership team would say, well, he's in government, so he can do that.
1: Yeah. And also, there's a, there's a misunderstanding of how currency works, that $15 is about £11 small pounds details, an Small details,
3: Matt, small
2: details.
1: Um, what does Keir Starmer do then if they do start shouting £15 an hour or something about his 10 pledges, which doesn't sound like a very coherent chart to me? <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm not sure how that would go, the 10 pledges. Have,
1: have they been practising what he does to sort of slap them down?
3: I haven't got the exclusive on that. <laughs> but I assume they do have some lines prepared. But Momentum's explanation for why they're instructing them to do these kind of not Jeremy Corbyn chants but other stuff is because they're saying they will have prepared lines for about the Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn, Corbyn stuff, but mm. not these other things.
1: To so completely throw him off course by exactly. asking about pledge number three.
3: Yeah.
1: Let's <laughs> <laughs> see if he can... Um, how uh, Looking ahead to the Toy party conference next week, uh, Isabel, how worried do you think the Tories will be about what's got on in Brighton this week?
2: Not at all. I just don't think that that'd be at all, <laughs> because look, I mean, the weirdest thing this week was the Tories saying they weren't putting people up for broadcast yesterday. I think it was because of the long-standing convention that we do not muddle up the airways during our opponent's party conference which how nice of them during the fuel <laughs> crisis but Labour failed to fill those airways so Labour failed to to capitalize on the fuel crisis which given Keir Starmer's penchant for jumping all over crises you think he'd be pretty good at by now but they've been so muted I mean it really has felt like we're in a proper not so much a, a bubble as a kind of I don't know a kind of
3: Eden project roof in this conference <laughs> that the, the, the fuel crisis has barely percolated
1: yeah is that your take as well, Sienna?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, it's difficult at conference, right? Because, you like, all the fringe events are organised months and months in yeah. advance. I certainly know that. The speeches are about their briefs, which is not necessarily about the fuel crisis. You know, it's difficult to be current at Labour conference. But at the same time, it does seem as if the opportunities they have had they haven't adapted to what's actually happening at the moment which you know they talk about a cost of living crisis and these kind of general very general terms and they'll mention oh there's an energy crisis but in terms of specifics there's been nothing
1: and it does feel a bit like we've talked about this earlier in the week you know i remember at the tory party conference during the financial crisis david cameron sort of stormed the stage and you know at an extra speech on the Sunday afternoon. To, tell the government to get a grip and the Tory party stand ready to mm. do whatever it takes to save the economy. Mm-hmm. And it sort of it electrified the conference and also stuck them right in the story that everyone's talking about.
2: Yeah. I think they could have sort of torn things up actually. Yeah. And rather than carrying on a sort of railway track, they could have said, no, this is a national crisis. And they, they, I personally think they should have said something like we want Parliament to be recalled, yes. which the government wouldn't have done, so it would have made the government look a bit rubbish, rather than sort of, oh, well, let's occasionally mention a fuel crisis in a fringe
3: about electric cars.
2: Because <laughs>
1: right. actually, two, two years ago here was when the um, Supreme Court ruling came in on the propagation of Parliament We being, all
3: went home early. And we
1: all bit, but Jeremy Corbyn came on the stage and did, did it was quite a moment, mm-hmm. comes on the stage on, in an unplanned speech and tears into the government and says, we're going back to, you know, Parliament's been recalled, we're going back... And it was, like, quite a moment mm-hmm, rather yeah. than, yeah, like you said, everything being planned weeks in advance.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that would have been a great move. I like your yeah. suggestion. Thanks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they don't listen to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and how, how damaging do you think all the fuel crisis stuff is uh, for Boris Johnson, uh, Isabel? Because this this pattern of industry warning, weeks pass, crisis builds, government finally picks up a phone to industry to ask how can we sort it out, mm. and then we all agree it's going to take a while to... to you know, level out again. I,
2: I think one thing which is probably helping ministers in a in a dreadful way is that a lot of people seem to be blaming their neighbours. So a lot of people are saying, Oh it's my selfish people down the street. Yeah. They aren't key workers. They just want to go and walk their dog and they've filled up their <laughs> tank and all that kind of thing. So there's a sort of Diffusing of the blame, but I don't think that's going to last over the coming months because you know we've got what's the army on standby, which is like such a Fleet Street term, <laughs> um, and it's not actually going to help at all in terms yeah, of the yeah. you know what 150 lorry drivers from the army versus the shortage of like you know 100,000 HGV drivers and. In general. So, over the next few months, we're going to have other shortages. You know, there's the iron brew shortage, which I know my, my colleague Katie Balls <laughs> is, is very upset about. Um, there's the Gregg's shortage, there's been the Haribo shortage. And as we come up to, to Christmas, we're going to have other shortages. I've got friends who've actually been panic buying for Christmas already, which, you know, I would refuse to do it at any time. But I think as we get closer to Christmas... But the thing
1: is, they don't think they're panic buying. They think they're being prudent and sensible. Absolutely. Other people panic buying. I just plan ahead.
2: I just need a turkey more than you. Yeah. Um, But I think it is going to hit people more. And I think if there's a pattern of lots of things that people are very used to picking up from the shelves without thinking, uh, going into shortage, then people are going to start blaming the government because it's going to be just so obvious that it's not people stocking up on turkeys it, well, I mean maybe it is but I don't think you can keep blaming your neighbours forever
1: I think it's interesting Sienna, that the, the uh, Boris Johnson battles to save Christmas headlines start early in earlier and <laughs> yeah, earlier
4: exactly. it was at least sort of
1: October November when we had it last year um, and that, that's proper crunchy real life politics that people care about and they want government to do something to sort it out
3: yeah, absolutely. And obviously it does play into this kind of the main dividing line between this Labour Party and the Tories is competence, according to the Labour leadership. Right. He is a serious politician. He's competent. Uh, whereas Boris Johnson is a clown, as David Lammy said this morning. That is the kind of distinction that they want to make. And this kind of crisis obviously plays into that. Do you perfectly. think it works,
1: though? Because we know this. We know this about Boris Johnson. Yeah. He is a creation of panel shows and then zip wires and all of that. If, they, if the Labour Party genuinely think that saying Boris Johnson is a clown for the next four years is going to win the election, that's not going to work, is it?
3: I think the clown thing doesn't matter as long as Boris Johnson has a really big, clear, strong message and the Labour Party doesn't. If we're in a crisis and he's a clown, then that starts yeah. to you know, have an impact. Yeah,
2: people are less forgiving of a clown who means they can't get to work and they can't get their special Christmas turkey. And so on. I, I also think there's been a problem with Labour's slogan this week, which is it's stronger future together for those who've, who've strangely missed it from the message <laughs> discipline. I'd say the refrain you actually hear from front bench spokespeople the most is, why didn't they plan for this? Yeah. Look, if, if they're going to go on the plan thing, go on the plan thing, go big on it. You know, have, have some kind of slogan, which is something about a plan. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We're organised or, you know, something like the that.
1: The long term economic plan. Which Beautiful. got more and more long-term and really are boring for those of us who had to hear <laughs> it all the time. But that that gave the sense of austerity was not a evil Tories cutting because they love cutting. It was part of a plan. We'd mm. thought it through. Mm. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take longer than we said. So it's a long-term economic plan. But you're right. Stronger future together. Just, I mean, together, stronger future. I mean, any one of those were. It's also... The font and the way it's stuck on the board is also slightly reminiscent of those letters that dropped off behind Theresa May. <laughs> I can't remember what it said. The, the, for, the for, what it said hunt. once the letters had fallen yeah. off.
2: <laughs> <for>. <laughs>
1: that sort of scrabble, uh, <laughs> rearranging of the letters. Isabel Hartman and Theana what is there. Up next, we take a look at Labour leaders making their conference debuts before we dive into Keir Starmer's speech. This is the Redbox Podcast. Now, let's take a look back at the history of debut Labour leader speeches. You know, a debut conference speech is a big deal. How do you go about making a success of it? Well, we've been asking delegates here at the conference what they want to see from him.
5: Just hearing something about uh, the the, the direction of the party, how we we are going to be standing up for, for the people, how we're going to be standing up for business. I think it's going to be some real vision for what we need to do for our country. It's been the most difficult year we've had in living memory Um, and coming out the other side of that we just need a real strong positive vision
6: it's a really silly one but i think just like a platform to run on like i don't think we're that far away from an election like even if we were 18 months away from an election we've got at least 12 months to run on it and i just our platform I think it would be
5: about how he's going to unite the party again. That That is the biggest thing. We are a fractional party, and I, I really want to see him come out strong.
2: I'd really welcome hearing from Keir about how he can set the health service in the context of the wider community, so tackling health inequalities, deprivation, the issues that people are living with that lead them to have difficult conditions like heart disease, like mental health problems. These don't come from nowhere, they come from the society that we live in, and I'd really like him to be talking in a really strategic way how we can help people live a better life. It's
5: be
6: nice to hear a vision which is going to unify the Labour Party. Because at the minute we're deeply divided. I want to hear that he's listened to young, not just younger members and people in Young Labour, but young people all across the
7: country. Whether that's sort of on environmental policy or uh, a lot of economic things, I know
6: young people are very concerned about house prices, uh, university tuition fees. And I think he really needs to address what well, the things that young young people in society actually want to hear about.
5: Some commitment, I think, too, as well. You know, because a lot of things have been going on, as you know, and and I think a lot of people are getting you know sick of it now. And I think clear policies need to put in place.
1: Clear policies. That's what people are looking for here in Brighton. Well, how much is actually riding on this and what actually makes a good speech? Let's speak to Scarlett Maguire, a former, uh, former media advisor to the Labour Party, back when they used to win elections. Hi, Scarlett.
8: Oh, hi. Uh,
1: nice to have you with us. So, yeah, give us a sense of, uh, of when you used to advise the Labour Party and what did you used to tell them?
8: Well, the, the the whole point is that you're talking. You 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 have multiple audiences, don't you? I mean, that 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 is Keir's problem. Is on the one hand, he's got to persuade the people in the conference, which includes the journalists and the commentators as well as as well as the delegates from the unions, that he's a winner, right? That they that they really can go with him. And the much more difficult thing is persuading people out there that actually what he's saying has some cut through. And that's incredibly difficult because, you know, you've got to you've got to get the, the journalists who are going to clip the right bits, who are going to say this is a wonderful speech. And I would think that while the, the conference bubble goes on, I mean, actually, most people in the country are barely aware that there is a Labour Party conference at the moment. And so so how he's do- got an incredible... Go on.
1: No, I was going to say, so how do you create that moment, the sort of the fizz or the whatever you call it? It feels like there needs to be a moment which sort of has spines tingling in the hall, but also really punches through people's TV screens when they're watching the news tonight.
8: I know. And the one that we all remember is Neil Kinnock talking about militant, talking about... And a Labour council, a Labour council sending taxis round with redundancy notices. And the problem is 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 what he's got to do that is he's got to not be attacking his own party but he's got to be attacking the tories and actually it's very very difficult to get something fresh and new about you know how incompetent this government is so (laughs) that that's what he's got to do is he's got he's got to get the, that this is what's so ridiculous is, is because it's not about here it's about the person writing the speech that that gets something that absolutely encapsulates how terrible this government is because that's who he's got to attack and and you don't know when it's going to happen if you think about Ed Miliband talking about um the, the uh, George Osborne uh budget and he and he talked about an omni shambles and an omni shambles was picked up over and over again and has gone gone down in communications history. So he's got an amazingly difficult job of that he's, he's got to get out there, persuade people that actually he's, he's really got something to say at the same time as really fizzing up the conference floor so that the standing ovation, which they will give him, they will give him many, they will clap and clap and clap, but that it's real and not just a wish.
1: And uh, how important is it, because there have been lots of um, talk when I've been speaking to people in Brighton, there's a slight fear, that a bit like the uh, the 13,000-word essay that we got from Kirsty last week. If this is a speech sort of written by committee, if it's not written, you know, clearly you'll have a speechwriter to make sure it's sort of properly crafted. He's not been sort of sitting and doing all of his typing himself. But it needs to be very, it's, it needs to be, you know, when you can fake sincerity and all of that, uh, then uh, then you've got it made. <laughs> He need, it needs to feel like this is really what he thinks um, and what he believes in, a, in an authentic way, even if 10, 15 people have all been sort of diddling about in the Google Doc
8: no you're you're absolutely right i mean and that that is the absolute key that Keir needs to look for even though he certainly will not be the only he will not be writing his own speech there's absolutely no question about it that there are people who will be piling in that every single sentence will be gone through even though frankly Most of us will not be aware of most of these sentences and it will have gone through and gone through and he will have rehearsed it. Um, I mean, he's rehearsing it, you know, in theaters, he's rehearsing it in in the hall um, to try and get uh, some oomph into every word that he says so that, so that he's picking it up. And, and to, on top of that, to do the personal stuff is quite difficult. I mean, particularly, I mean, this is a man who who is quite shy actually, and who's, who's who's quite private, and to have to make him lay out, you know, look, I am the son of a toolmaker. My mother was always <laughs> ill, and and you know had a terrible, I, I, I was an amazingly brave woman, but you know had her legs amputated because of this terrible illness she had. I mean, it's quite a quite an ask, and he he has. They're going to make him do it. They're going to make him talk about where he comes from and and then the future and and it's it's trying to make sure that that one feels that he absolutely owns it so yes i mean it'll be a performance but it'll be a performance you're absolutely right that only works if one feels that he's absolutely in it
1: scarlet mcguire thank you so much for talking us through That's it's absolutely fascinating Scott mcguire former uh, media advisor to the labour party
4: on digital radio on the web and via the times radio app Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Good morning, nice
1: to have you with us. We're taking a look at how a party leader prepares for their first conference speech. Now, that big first speech is their chance to move the party in the direction they want. It can make or break a conference, it can make or break a leadership. Uh, do they go away with a spring in their step or plotting a leadership challenge? Let's take a look back at some of the maiden speeches of Labour leaders through history and ask what Keir Starmer can learn from them if he's listening. He's got uh, time to tweak things. Uh, Patrick Kidd, uh, the Times diary editor, who's who's watched plenty of these uh, speeches over the years, joins me. Hi, Patrick.
7: Hello, Matt. How's the seaside?
1: It's, it's not been bad, actually. It's been a bit blustery, a bit wet and windy at times, but, you know, it's nice to be, nice to be by the sea, um, albeit actually stuck in this windowless, uh, <laughs> this windowless conference exhibition area for longer than perhaps I might have liked. So let's, um, uh, let's dive straight into the archives, Patrick. Let's go all the way back to 1976. James Callaghan, uh, whose speech sought to move Labour on from being a protest movement for the unions into a party of government.
5: There are many ills and many
7: evils in the condition of our society that have still to be remedied, but we are more. We are now a party of government, a party which has put many of the aspirations of the pioneers on the statute book as the law of our land. I hope what I would like to emerge from it is that the government is willing to tell the people the truth, willing to consult with the party willing to work with the trade unions and with the people to solve our national problems. That's the philosophy of the social contract. Don't listen to the faint hearts. Have confidence. This Labour movement has the responsibility. Now let it prove that it has the maturity to lead our country and our party to a new future.
1: So that's uh, Jim Callaghan back in 1976. Uh, It all feels uh, strangely familiar, that, Patrick Kidd.
7: Yes, well, apart from sort of having some or- oratorical force. There's a rather nice um, speaking style there of Callaghan. Not much applause, not... not. I mean, in, in the Blair era, you had lots of shorter sentences to try and get people clapping and standing up, uh, well, every other minute, I suppose. Um, but it, it is a, di- a difficult moment. Of course, Callaghan was in government. Um, that, does, that already makes every,
1: every single word you say just a bit more interesting.
7: Yeah, the prime ministerial voice sort of comes when you're prime minister, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that, um, and, uh, do you, it's, also, it's also a, a sort of, the, you talk about, you know, how you get lots of round of applause now, and I imagine we'll get, we'll get plenty of those at kiss time. It's a sort of slight Americanisation of our politics. Maybe back in the, in the 1970s, were we a bit more British about all of that sort of thing?
7: Yes, yeah, we didn't want to get carried away. Although Thatcher in 75, so the year before that, her uh, maiden speech as, as Tory leader was, was not only short, and we'll get on to how short speeches are generally better speeches. But it was punctuated almost every sentence. It, it, it was The Times um, reporting on it said that it was like an American political convention. Um. And perhaps the thing for Thatcher then and um, for Blair in 94, and not quite, I feel, for Starmer, is that people sensed there was a, a shifting of, of, of the sands and that this was a government coming in.
1: It's just a, just a sort of air of excitement, something in the, in the air. Well, let's, up, let's go back now to 1983. This is Neil Kinnock giving an impassioned speech at the height of the miners' strike at his first conference during, the, during that Thatcher government.
4: That precondition is unavoidable, total, insurmountable, and it's a precondition, and in this movement we don't want to surmount. It is the precondition that we win a general election. That is the precondition. There are some in our movement who, when I say we must reach out in that fashion, accuse me of an obsession with electoral politics. There is no need in this task to surrender our socialism. There's no need to abandon or even try to hide. I remind you, every one of you, of something that every single one of you said in the desperate days before June the 9th, 1983, you said to each other on the streets, you said to each other in the cars rushing round, you said to each other in the committee rooms, elections are not won in weeks, they are won in years. That's what you said to each other. That's what you've got to remember, not future weeks.
7: I mean, that's powerful stuff, Patrick Kidd. It is, and um, he also has some very good flourishes in that, the, the repetition of phrases. Um, there, there's a lovely bit from the same speech where he talks through the, the Tory disasters, and it begins, this was the year when tax was introduced on fish and chips. This was the year when farmers slaughtered milk cows. This was the year when old-age pensioners were charged for their spectacles. And builds up and builds up, and that's how you get the audience going. I mean, just as a, as a matter of sort of polish and, and flourish, having a phrase that you cling on to. Um, and and that, that's what, what Blair was very good. And, and unfortunately, other leaders have, have been less good at sort of taking the audience with you through the speech.
1: Does it make any difference that, that, you know, um, uh, Neil Kinnock was just a much more animated, passionate public speaker? If Keir Starmer came out and tried to do that sort of thing, would we think he'd gone a bit, you know, if he'd, if he'd been... Uh, sort of th- th- drama-trained to come out just shout everything, just shout, repeat phrases and shout everything. We'd think that was a bit weird, wouldn't we?
7: We would think that that's weird, but sometimes you can, you can also use the same tactics but, but by dialing it down. Um, the, Tony Blair was quite good at, at doing call and response. Uh, but I don't know when we'll, we'll get on, on, onto his, but he uh, threw back at the Margaret Thatcher speech on coming into, into government, the, the Francis of Assisi line about uh, where there is... Uh, well, X, Y, and discord. Z. Where there yes. was, and he said, did they, Did she bring it? Um, so I'm just trying to find in my notes. Yes, here we are. Where there was Discord, is there harmony? They said, no. Where there was an error, is there truth? They cried, no. And he worked through that. And you're suddenly bringing the audience with you. I think you can do that even if you're not a particularly dramatic uh, speaker. You just need a theme and, and, and a way of keeping them awake.
1: Well, in fact, we can take a listen now to uh, that uh, first party conference speech by Tony Blair in 1994, when he was trying to unite the conference around New Labour by taking his fight to the Tories. And just look at Britain. Fifteen years after Margaret Thatcher stood
6: on the steps of Downing Street. Do you remember that? Where there was discord, is there harmony? Where there was error,
5: is there truth? Where there was doubt, is
1: there faith? Where there was despair, is there hope?
5: Harmony, when crime has more than doubled. Truth, when they won an election on lies about us and lies about what they would do.
1: I mean, it was even better than when you did it, Patrick. Um, (laughs) uh, But what's interesting there is it's all to a purpose. It's not just a clever line. He's communicating a message. There's a bit of humour, a bit of call and response, a bit of dramatic um, delivery. But in order to communicate a key message, the Tories are rubbish and we'll be better than that.
7: Yeah, I mean, he had momentum behind him. So in the very first paragraph of that speech, he begins by saying, we meet in a spirit of hope. I set out my vision. Uh, the, that year, Labour had won four by-elections. They'd had very good council elections. Starmer doesn't have that coming behind him. He's obviously, he's lost in Hartlepool. We did not all that well in the local elections. And of course, although we're saying this is his first... A Labour conference speech, he actually did give one last year in an empty arts centre in Doncaster, <laughs> which is a bit like being at the Lib Dem conference, I'd imagine, but this is the first time he's, he's got an audience, and so therefore he's had now a year and a half. And, and, and last year he said, I didn't go into politics to be in opposition. The trouble is he hasn't built up the case over the last 18 months that he is a winner. So that's a challenge, um, because Blair could. could because that, Blair looked messianic. If you watch the video on YouTube, he looks young. He's in prime, bam. They all look young, by the way. It's, it's, if you look behind, Gordon Brown is almost looking sexy. You've got even Prescott. <laughs> Prescott looks young. Um, and Blair is sort of looking up at the heavens. There's a sort of destiny thing there. That's not going to work for Star. I do sometimes wonder if Star was best tactic is just to bring out one of the donkeys that his mother used to uh, save. Listen, <laughs> let me save ride you it. like this donkey.
1: He should ride it onto the stage with a Kiss Me Quick hat on. Well, As you, as you mentioned, uh, it's not a phrase I thought I was going to use this morning, sexy Gordon Brown. Uh, let's take a listen to him in 2007.
5: And like so many people across this country, I have the best of reasons to believe in the life-saving power of the NHS and the liberating power of education and for making them both the best they can be. So this is my pledge to the British people. I will not let you down. I will stand up for our schools and hospitals. I will stand up for British values. I will stand up for a strong Britain. And I will always stand up for you.
1: Quite a lot of the things we've been talking about there, Patrick, with the, you know, the repetition of the phrase, the building of the momentum, really landing that, that round of applause. And actually a reminder that despite what happened in the election in 2010, Gordon Brown was quite good at this stuff when he, really, you know, when he really went for it.
7: He was good. His difficulty, of course, was that he became leader after 10 years in government. Um, and so you have to defend your record while attacking the, 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 the chances opposite. He also, uh, you mentioned about Neil Kinnock speaking in the middle of the miners' strike. Um, Brown spoke in a time of turmoil. We'd had three terrorist attacks, Glasgow Airport and two car bombs in London, flooding and foot and mouth. And what was fascinating is he began it by addressing these, uh, this omnishambles shambles we might call it today, <laughs> and saying that what it had shown was the resilience of the British people to get through. Um, now, I don't think that will work for Starmer to come out and say, you know, we're all doing marvellously, it's not as bad as you think. But, but perhaps by, by, if he begins by saying it's been an awful year and the government has made it worse, but I want to salute the people for coming through this and we will get get through, that might work for him.
1: Was that was sort of the line he was trying to walk, I think, in his essay last week was, you know, isn't the country awful, but actually do we all pull together during the the pandemic and it showed Britain at its best? And it's a very different. It's a very difficult thing for the opposition. You don't want to look like you're just talking everything down. But also you can't go around saying everything's, everything's marvellous because... <laughs> Well, well good, good for the government. It's you need to government. say that
7: the people are marvellous, but the, but the country is been exactly. badly let.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah the, the people have been let down by the, by the government. We've still got, because the Labour Party gets through them, we've still got a couple more to get through. Let's take a listen to, uh, this is back in 2010, Ed Miliband trying to make the Labour Party the party of optimism.
6: We are the optimists in politics today, so let's be humble about our past. Let's understand the need to change. Let's inspire people with our vision of the good society. Let the message go out. A new generation has taken charge of Labour. Optimistic about our country. Optimistic about our world. Optimistic about the power of politics. We are the optimists, and together we will change Britain. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, Now, I I remember that speech at the time, uh, Patrick. I'm not sure it quite hung together in the same way. The the, the, the the just saying optimism over and over again in slightly different formulations.
7: Well, exactly. It's very hard after 13 years to try and pretend that you're new. Uh, that, that phrase he said, "We are the new generation," just make me think of the old Pepsi advertising campaign. <laughs> we are, and the trouble is, the nation preferred Coca Cameron, who um, looked even more new and shiny. Um, so, I mean, I think he was optimistic in thinking that optimism would win the day. I'm not sure quite what, what else. A bit like William Hague in, in 97. To some extent, you need to take your kicking. But you have to admit after, after losing an election that, that mistakes are made. And it's not sackcloth and ashes, but you, you can't go in saying, I, I, I'm a winner, when you've probably just lost.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, which brings us to the last of the, uh, of the recent Labour leaders uh, to give their debut speeches. In 2015, Jeremy Corbyn uh, used a Maya Angelou quote uh, to call for a kinder, gentler politics.
5: There's another important thing about how we're going to do this. It's a vital part of our new politics. I want to repeat what I said at the start of the leadership election. I do not believe in personal abuse of any sort. Treat people with respect. Treat people as you wish to be treated yourself. Listen to their views, agree or disagree, but have that debate. There's going to be no rudeness from me. Maya Angelou, brilliant writer, said this You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Wonderful words from Maya Angelou.
1: That was Jeremy Corbyn back in uh, 2015 calling for a kinder, gentler politics. I'm not sure it quite worked out like that, Patrick. Kidd, in the
7: end, it didn't. But uh, the biggest problem actually with Corbyn's first speech because there was there was nice sentiments and he tried to build bridges. Bear in mind at the time his shadow cabinet included Hillary Benn and people like that. It, it, it hadn't all started to fall apart. It was so long. I, I I wrote in the sketch I did at the time that when you left the hall, you were surprised it was still daylight outside. Um, <laughs> I've I've, got, I've printed out the various speeches by the Labour Labour leaders. Um, and Brown's was was eight pages long. Blair's was six, six. Corbyn's went on for fifteen. Um, and it's wow. And the trouble is you are going to lose, at one point he started going about Saudi Arabia, which I'm not really sure is what you need in your first leader speech, um, and and, and Syria. Um, But it it was genuine, it it was kind of gentle. The the, the slogan he campaigned under was straight talking, honest politics. Uh, So just a bit less of it uh, was was probably what, what was needed.
1: And of course, also in that, um, you know, because he, he hadn't done a lot of sort of uh, big podium speeches, he did struggle a bit with the auto cue, including reading out at one point, strong message here. Yes. Uh, which was a note from the auto cue rather than something that he needed to read out.
7: That's something to, to avoid. And I, we may discuss next week t- t- Tory um, for speeches. But, but Margaret Thatcher's, um, who, as I said, was 41 minutes, quite nice, short, punchy, good oratory, she'd written on the top, you can see this in the Thatcher archive, the words relax, low-speaking voice, not too slow. Now, if Starmer comes out in half an hour and just says, relax, low-speaking voice, not too slow, (laughs) maybe that's what we want, and then sits down, brings out a donkey at that point, Um, then we might all be happy. But, yes, don't read out your stage instructions. Don't be too long. Don't try to be who you're not, and and give them something to, to cheer.
1: So that's previous Labour leaders, but how did Keir Starmer actually get on? No sooner had he walked off the stage, I caught up with Patrick Maguire, Redbox editor, to get his take on the big make-or-break speech. Keir Starmer delivered his first in-person conference speech of his leadership in Brighton. He said his focus was on work and family, but did this make-or-break speech work? And is Labour now a happy family? I'm joined by Patrick Maguire, Times Redbox editor. Patrick, in a moment we'll talk about some of the Labour Party stuff, but one of the big criticisms of... It's so far he hadn't really inserted himself into the the other big story of the week, which is petrol,
6: uh, the fuel crisis, and he did that right from the get-go. Yes, right from the off. uh, Every news bulletin tonight will carry, um, by Keir uh, Keir Starmer's standards, quite a nifty uh, and uh, on-the-pulse joke saying, you know, in this country uh, you can't even fill up, so how do we expect the government to level up? Uh, Which, you know, as you say... Not often Keir Starmer inserts himself so deftly into the big story of the day and even more difficult given that these speeches are addresses to the party faithful. So he started off very strongly there.
5: If you go outside and walk along the seafront, it won't be long before you get to a petrol station that's got no fuel. Why do we suddenly have a shortage of HGV drivers? Why is there no plan in place? A tank of fuel already costs £10 more than it did at the start of the year. Gas and electricity bills up, gaps in the supermarket shelves, rent up, especially for those on the lowest incomes. Yet this is the very moment the government is putting up tax on working people, putting up tax on small business, and shamefully slashing. Universal credit, the lifeline for six million families. We have a fuel crisis, a pay crisis, a goods crisis, and a cost of living crisis all at the same time. Prime Minister, either get a grip or get out of the way and let us step up and clear up this mess.
1: Another big test for Keir Starmer was his ability to properly take the fight to Boris Johnson. There's been this criticism, particularly during the pandemic, where for understandable reasons he was lu- reluctant to be seen to be criticising uh, the government. But again, he managed to step up. There some colorful
6: language, some decent jokes. Yeah, in the first half of the speech, um, we got the personal story of Keir Starmer, and it was all intended to draw out his... Qualities as a, you know, to borrow a phrase, Boris Johnson likes to use an oven-ready prime minister. Um, there were lots of comparisons with his perceived seriousness with Boris Johnson's, in his words, you know, he's not a he's not a bad man, he's a trivial man. And it's that, again, it's that competence framing Sir Keir Starmer uses again and again and again. Um, you know, again, uncharacteristically uh, flippant, frivolous from Keir Starmer was, uh, he mentioned, as we've heard many times before, his dad being a toolmaker, uh, quip that Boris Johnson's dad might be worthy of the, same, uh, of the same title. Conference, it's
5: easy to comfort yourself that your opponents are bad people. I don't think Boris Johnson is a bad man. I think he's a trivial man. I think he's a showman. (laughs) He's, He's a showman with nothing left to show. He's a trickster who's performed his one trick. Once he'd said the words, get Brexit done, his plan ran out. But let's focus on uh, the Labour Party then, because
1: previously when he ran for the Labour leader, Keir Starmer's focus was on unity, bringing the Labour Party back together again. We were told before the speech that he was putting it out to one side. It wasn't about unity anymore, it was about putting his mark on the party, and strikingly he was uh, very critical of the last Labour manifesto uh, which was put to the country and then got big applause for uh, praising the, the governments of Tony Blair and Gordon
6: Baird. Yeah. Interestingly though, the only one of the so there were three figures who loomed large over this speech. One was Jeremy Corbyn, not mentioned by name, but as you said, again and again and again, Keir Starmer returned to the themes of credibility, um, talking about government in action rather than sloganeering. Yes, saying, you know, um, he even tied his criticism of the Tories into the quality of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. You know, in his peroration, he was talking about, um, you know, well, not quite his peroration. Paration, one of many perorations. He said, "If we couldn't even beat this um, shower of muppets, what does he, not that, that he used those words? <laughs> what does that say about us?" Tony Blair again didn't mention Tony Blair by name because that is a recipe for uh, you know setting this hall alight. But he did staunchly. Uh, interesting, w- without the caveats that you hear. From past Labour leaders like Ed Miliband. There was no criticism of New Labour. He embraced New the Labour's domestic record as a good thing. And there, was,
1: there was no need to say, oh, by the way, Iraq. Yes. There was a total focus on minimum wage, improving schools, improving public services. And as
6: much as Keir Starmer is often likened to sort of an Ed Miliband redux, that's a really significant difference. And it's the first time since 2010 any Labour leader has really done that. His he gave a long list of New Labour's achievements that was very reminiscent of the uh, Gordon Brown's last stand at the party conference in 2010 when he, I have to admit, the oratory wasn't quite as good. When Gordon Brown listed the achievements of the Labour government, Kirstarmer consciously imitated that.
1: It wasn't all uh, uh, happy families, though. Uh, right, from quite early on, the speech was marked by uh, heckling.
5: This, this is a... At this time on a Wednesday, it's normally the Tories that are heckling me. doesn't bother me then. Bother me now. So, so, so you see, shouting slogans or changing lives conference. Now.
1: Normally, a party leader would never want to be heckled at their, during their speech, or so deliver their speech and have control of it. But not only were they prepared for it, there is a sense that Team Starmer
6: are probably quite pleased about how it panned out. Yeah, there are, t- there are two theories here. The first is that, as you say, Keir Starmer's team will be delighted because the heckles, which I have to say, um, you know, often these things are likened to Neil Kinnock's speech in 1985 where... You had members of the militant tendency in the crowd heckling him. Uh, You know, Derek Hatton and Eric Heffer, uh, prominent Liverpoolian politicians. This time, you had um, a former Big Brother contestant. (laughs) uh, Lots of um, quite uh, eccentric, shall we say... Uh, grassroots activists talking about everything from the £15 minimum wage to later on um, freeing Julian Assange. It wasn't quite the battle for the soul of the Labour Party that we've seen in previous years. And Keir Starmer, in response, could reinforce all of the themes he was trying to draw out in the speech. And I'm sure actually, when we see and hear these things on the bulletins, it will be the responses to the heckles. Uh, you know, changing lives, not shouting slogans. He even uh, referenced the, you know, said at this time on Wednesday, it's usually the Tories are heckling me which is a nice needling line but the second thing is it's worth remembering you have low level heckling throughout this speech Keir Starmer handled it very well but it was a little bit chaotic and it reminded me of something a shadow cabinet minister said to me yesterday which was I asked them do you think Keir should take on the left and have his Kinnick moment they said people forget that Kinnick's ratings went up after he gave that speech because people saw a strong leader but the Labour Party's ratings went down because they saw a party in chaos. Now, interestingly, whether the difference is that actually the public see that this is a few, uh, a, few grassroots, uh, a, grass- a few grassroots characters rather than people at the top of the party will be the interesting difference.
1: So finally, the, um, the, the fifth big takeaway from this, I suppose, is his focus on family, talking about his mother being a nurse and them being careful by the NHS, talking about his father as a toolmaker, and the values that that instills in him.
5: When she was young She was diagnosed with Still's disease. It's a rare form of inflammatory arthritis which severely restricts mobility. This disease, along with the drugs she had to take to control it, took a very heavy toll. The NHS that had been her livelihood became her lifeline.
1: All of those themes that he wanted to have a home, he did bring together in it. It was an extraordinarily long, ninety-minute speech, um,
6: but it, on the whole, I think he would be pretty happy with how it went. Yes, I think so. And as he said at the very beginning, the two cornerstones, the two rocks of his identity, what got him into politics and what sustain him in politics, are family and work. It has to be said by uh, you know by the hour mark, we were into robotic exoskeletons and undersea wind turbines, but he returns to that in the preparation: family and work um, and that is those are the two those are the two frames that Labour strategists think are uh, the most uh, the most effective way of framing Labour's message the party of security be that in work be that in the home or uh, you know through life Labour providing um, and I think Keir Starmer as much as we have had to sit through 90 minutes uh, occasionally sort of uh, futurist techno babble and uh Dad jokes and sort of slightly clumsy literary allusions. I think that framework he managed to hammer home quite effectively. Uh, just finally, lots of people said it was
1: make or break. He was focusing on work and security and so long. Is it, he's more secure in his job now than
6: before we, he started the speech. Another thing another shadow cabinet minister said to me earlier this week was if this goes badly, all bets are off. It clearly didn't go badly. What people around Keir Starmer and indeed what Keir Starmer knew he needed to do. Um, on his own terms. He succeeded earlier in the week in getting the Labour rule changes through. He had to communicate that same sort of message, i.e. this party has changed, its focus is now the country, not its internal affairs, um, and we are ready to govern, and we compare favourably to the Conservative Party. Those are all things I'd say Keir Starmer communicated. Whether the public will look at him and say you did so with enough conviction, whether it feels much affection for him, are all unanswered questions. But on its own terms, regardless of how tedious it was for as at points I think it broadly succeeded that's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast don't forget you
1: can listen to me live Monday to Friday 10 till 1 on Times Radio we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from